Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I am so excited today. We have Kelly Krause with us today. She is an archaeologist and screenwriter based in California and founder of Disaster Capital, which is a genre production company that deals, in Kelly's words, with all the fun stuff. And I completely agree. So we're talking like sci-fi and horror, aren't we? Yes. (laughs) Now, we're talking to you and you are in San Francisco. And this is brilliant because I know bugger all about the history of San Francisco and we have so many American listeners I know there was a big earthquake at some point and a lot of gold (laughs) and that's why they're called the 49ers and that is it so I'm really Um, looking forward to this but you know what you're not alone um I I mean there tend to be some major gaps in people's knowledge of San Francisco and, and and it tends to be exactly as you said gold rush earthquake maybe summer of love and that's where it ends yeah (laughs) basically and a big bridge and planet of the apes yeah (laughs) and the bridge that always gets it in the disaster movies oh yeah yeah i mean you have to have your iconic landmarks destroyed otherwise it's not a disaster it's the first thing to get hit by a meteorite or a giant wave or whatever isn't it yeah, exactly. And um, most recently in media, superheroes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> or monkey. Oh, sorry, not monkeys. Uh, apes. apes. The apes go a yeah. bit ape on it, don't they? <laughs> See what I did there? Anyway. Badum <laughs> Tish. Okay, so let's start with something that I really don't know anything about. So before any white people got to the San Francisco Bay area. We, it was the domain of the Ohlone Native American Indian tribe. So can you tell us a bit more about them and their way of life before settlers came? Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this just because mm. this is a, a huge part of San Francisco, uh, San Francisco history that so, people, you know, so, so few people actually know about. Um, I, I kind of want to kick off by saying that the Ohlone are still here. They very much want everybody to know that they are still here. Brilliant. No, I'm glad because <laughs> one of the things I was going to ask you is where did they get run out of town to? But that's brilliant that they're still there. Yes. Um, so the, the Ohlone is the collective term that's kind of used for um, eight tribelets, as they're called, that kind of inhabited the whole of the San Francisco Bay Area. So not just San Francisco, but, you know, Berkeley, Oakland, um, uh, San Jose in the south. 
And uh, in San Francisco specifically, though, we have a very specific dialect of Ohlone. So that's kind of the, de the demarcator is the dialects. Mm. And that is uh, the Ramaytush dialect, the Ramaytush Ohlone. Um, just across the bay in Oakland, you have the Chilchenyo Ohlone, who interacted regularly with the Ramaytush. And, and that community, thankfully, in Oakland is still very, very vibrant and doing a lot of great uh, work today to kind of revive Ohlone culture. Brilliant. Um, but uh, yes, um, these tribalists were very, very small. Um, it's, it doesn't seem likely that they had more than a thousand people at a given time. Um, that being said, though, the, the concentration of all these tribalists in the Bay Area was the largest population in the region that we now know as California um, prior to contact with Europeans. Um, and, you know, the, the, this was a very you know, egalitarian system um, for the most part. Um, and, you know, there was a, an, an economy, if you will, of trade with several of the um, tribes within the area. Um, sometimes uh, these uh, trade networks would expand, you know, quite, at least for that time, quite far out. So about a two hour drive um, <laughs> from San Francisco today is what is today known as Mount Diablo. The um, Ohlone name for it was, was Tushtak, and there is uh, presently uh, a massive movement to rename it Tushtak, and I'll hopefully okay. touch upon that a little bit later about how mm -hmm. it got the name Mount Diablo. Um, but that was a massive center for cultural events, for spiritual events, and for trade amongst the various networks of tribalists in the area. And a big reason for that is that this was seen as the center of the universe, the center of all creation. This was, you know, where the earth and the universe were created. This was the primordial island, if you will, in the sea of chaos. Okay. Um, so it was a very, very sacred site. Um, and now we're going to fast forward a little bit because I know we only have so much time today, but we're going <laughs> to... We can definitely come back and do more about the area's uh, Native American history, though, because we would love to have more Native American history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so now I want to get to um, contact a bit. Now, uh, the, the Spanish actually were sailing up and down the coast of California um, for a couple hundred years, <laughs> yeah. kind of trading, trading with various, you know, tribalists. Um, and as early as the 18th century, there was actually a Chinese community in the area, too. Nothing formal, but, you know, there, there, so there was trade happening with China as well. Um, in a very, um, you know, again, informal sort of way. Um, but it isn't until 1769 that um, the Spanish really have their first contact with the Ramaytushaloni in present-day San Francisco. And a few years later is when they establish um, the Mission Dolores. So this is part of the mission system in California that um, you may or may not have heard about. <laughs> So <laughs> this is, yeah, all these Christian missions up and down California, isn't it? Yes, yes, exactly. And particularly uh, along the coastline. Um, but uh, Mission Dolores was one of the first to be established uh, in the region, uh, along with the Presidio, um, which functioned as a military base and, and has really done so for, you know, the better part of 200 years now. Um, and... This, of course, ends up being very, 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 very uh, traumatizing for the indigenous population um, as far as, you know, the erasure of their language, the erasure of their culture, consequently, because culture is inherently tied to language. 
um, and, you know, just uh, a very, what became a very elaborate system of slavery and exploitative, oh my God, I can't even speak, <laughs> exploitative <laughs> labor. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the mission of the missions. Uh, when we read some of the accounts from these first missionaries who were coming over, uh, they really did believe, for better or worse, that they were doing the right thing, that they were doing something good, that they were helping these people, that they were going to educate them and make them, quote, unquote, civilized, <laughs> because mm. apparently they weren't civilized already. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, but uh, a major issue is that uh, <laughs> these missionaries were answering to higher authorities back in Spain. Um, you know, to uh, to governments, to to the military, etc., who had other ideas about how these missions should be should be functioning and how um, they should be using and you know quote unquote reeducating the Ohlone and likewise other tribes up and down the California coast. Um, I, I mean, this was something that turned very very violent very very quickly, um, and you know, where, again, like I said, you essentially had slave labor and um, punishment was very violent and severe. The use of whips was common practice. Uh, you also had the separation of men and women, which was not obviously um, the norm, the social norm within Ohlone culture. And, you know, this was done for so-called chastity reasons, you know, to preserve that, that you know, the, the virginal aspect of these Ohlone women. Um, but the conditions that the the conditions that, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Um, but the conditions that they were separated in were just appalling. I mean, the women were kept in a compound that had no windows, no windows at all. Um, just one door and they could come outside roughly two to three times a day. Um, but purely just to be shuffled to the church (laughs) within the mission compound. And, you know, like there, there was, um, there are several accounts of just this, this desperate flee daily from the women to get out of this Old room and have some, have some fresh air and, and sunlight for some few precious minutes. Um, but, it, uh, you know, it, it was terrible. And, you know, they're being forced to cut their hair, which is a big, big deal for many Native American cultures. But for yeah. the Ohlone in, in particular, you would only, only ever cut your hair, um, you know, uh, after the death of a loved one. It was part of your mourning process. But otherwise, you know, this was something that was very special. Um, but this is labeled as civilizing people. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, really, 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 <laughs> nothing really else to say. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, the Ohlone, uh, I, I mean, across the Bay have certainly proven to be very, very, very resilient and did find opportunities and, and found ways to keep some of their cultural practices going through this terrible system that operated up until 1834. Um in, in all of California, but, you know, including San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they were still able to uh, perform um, some ceremonial dances. Um, there was still an effort to try to preserve some aspects of their language and pass it down. Um, every now and then they were allowed to actually return 
to their uh, native villages or at least to some of their sacred sites. And here they could actually potentially interact with other tribelets and, you know, preserve trade and, and language that way. Um, and, and again, other uh, traditions that they weren't necessarily practicing regularly within the mission compound. Um, so um, I know that we're also going to talk about this a little bit later, but yeah. um, uh, the mission um, Dolores in San Francisco, uh, a part of that is still standing. It is the oldest surviving structure in the city. You can go visit it if you come to San Francisco. And one of the um, uh, associated sites with that, that that's attached to it that has survived is um, the Ohlone graveyard. Um, which can be very, very haunting, but, you know, just yeah. where uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Ohlone um, were buried, uh, many who didn't survive, um, to be honest, uh, not, not just because of the appalling conditions in the slave labor, but also the rampant disease that was flowing through these places. Is this um, a that disease that's brought in? Yes, yes. So like it's syphilis? That, that, and... Yes, exactly. Mm. The, things that they did not have a natural immunity to. Um, and that was you know, on, honestly probably the biggest factor um, in depleting the population and in depleting the birth rate as, uh, um, as well. I mean, the women, uh, Ohlone women, were actively practicing abortion because they refused to give birth to children within this terrible, terrible system. Jesus. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah. not Jesus. Uh, I don't think they were very big fans after no, all of this is no. done for them in the name of Christianity. Just I, wow. I mean, yeah, but but again, a very, very, very resilient people who, mm. like I said, are thankfully still here today, contrary to what many believe. You know, many believe that the Ohlone, um, that all the tribelets were wiped out. Um, and, you know, within um, the major urban centers of the Bay Area, so really San Francisco and Oakland, the Chochenyo Ohlone in particular, um, have been very, very, very resilient, um, which is just wonderful to see. Um, and a big part of that came down, you know, to, to strategy as well, surviving through the whole of the 19th century. Yeah. <laughs> and a good chunk of the early 20th century as well, until you saw this revitalization of Ohlone culture. And, and one of their methods for doing that was to say that they were Mexican. It was, yeah. better, to be, it was better to be a Mexican than it was to be, um, you know, Native American. What's the logic behind that? For the um, Spanish, I, I mean, for I the colonists. I don't think there is any logic to it, to be honest. And it wasn't just the Spanish. It was also, you know, um, the Mexicans who, who later came in once um, they were granted independence from Spain and, and California became part of Mexico. And then later the Americans and, you know, the many European immigrants who were also coming in um, uh, in the early half of the uh, 19th century, and particularly during the gold rush. Um, and I, I don't think there really is any logic to it. It's, it's just pure unadulterated racism. And um, mm. though I'm sure part of it just uh, it can be tied to how indigenous groups within California were viewed, um, you know, comparatively to their Mexican counterparts or to their black counterparts, you know, the uh, Mexicans in particular um, did have a degree of social sway, especially, you know, prior to the Mexican-American War. Um, and, you know, uh, while many were working class, many were also middle class and upper class and had some financial clout, um, you know, the, uh, the black community that eventually settled in San Francisco and in broader California as well, um, were, were free people who were coming over. California was set up as a freed state, though only for the terrible, terrible reason that apparently, um, black bodies could not 
um, um, work within the California environment. Their bodies couldn't stand the, the, the climate. Um, so again, still very, very, very <laughs> racist. And completely <laughs> illogical. Yes. <laughs> Sigh. Okay, so settlers have arrived. Um, what was Yerba Buena and how does that fall into the San Francisco narrative? Right. So Yerba Buena is actually the original name of San Francisco. So San Francisco okay. was, was not the original name that, that was given. Yerba Buena is the name that um, became this uh, sort of township um, once the Mexicans, once Mexico gained independence from Spain and, you know, brought California into its broader territory. And that was the name that was given to this tiny little settlement, uh, um, settlement uh, which literally means the good herb. Um, that district is still here in the city, though obviously it looks nothing like it did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in the 1830s when it was really being established and settled. Um, and of course, it's really being established and settled by Mexicans. And, um, you know, this is where we see the introduction of what uh, became known as the rancheros, um, in uh, broader California, but including San Francisco. So, you know, these massive, what could be massive ranches, um, and some of which became very, very profitable. There were definitely Mexican families who uh, made a great deal of money out of the ranchero system. Uh, and again, like could be off the backs <laughs> of indigenous yeah. labor. Um, but uh, yes, it was uh, the Mexican-American War that uh, really became one of the major, major turning points within the history of San Francisco. And, you know, the result of that war, like come 1848, is that the territory of California is ceded to the United States. So it would be another couple of years before California actually obtained statehood. Um, but, you know, like San Francisco becomes a major port of entry at that time to get people to California, especially when the gold rush kicks off in 1848. So just a couple years. Um, well, no, not, not a couple years. Uh, honestly, like a couple months really yeah. <laughs> after territory uh, is ceded. Um, but uh, um, this is where we really start to see the birth of San Francisco as most people tend to understand it as this, you know, this booming gold rush town. Um, and I mean, the population increases from 1,000 to 25,000 in the span of a year. Wow. <laughs> from 1848 so, to 1849, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the gold rush and its long-term impact, because that is just going to shake up the entire region, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And I, I mean, th these impacts would, would last for decades within San Francisco. Um, because for all intents and purposes, this was a sleepy, sleepy little town. You know, like I said, like there was a population of 1000 when gold was discovered in California in January 1848. And, you know, you uh, fast forward to 1849 and all of a sudden <laughs> you have yeah. 25,000 people. And the city, um, um, I mean, you couldn't even really call it a city then. It didn't have the infrastructure. And so that initiated this rapid, rapid growth and these massive city planning efforts. Um, and, you know, where we start to see many, many streets emerge, a lot of them very narrow little streets, though, to be honest, that still survive today around the city. So that's quite fun to check out if you're ever around. Mm. Um, and, you know, you see the emergence of, um, hotels and inns and bars. Um, and, 
you know, my, one of my favorite things <laughs> my, my, about um, the San Francisco, the Barbary Coast. Um, which really, you know, kind of became the center of vice in the city. I, I think we also have to remember that, you know, during these, these first couple of years of the gold rush, again, California is not a state. You are essentially in a lawless land, in a lawless yeah. city during these first couple of years. And anything goes. <laughs> it really is the Wild West, isn't it? Yes. So how, how insane does the Barbary Coast get? Um, I mean, it, it gets wild enough where eventually in 1851, so this is actually um, after statehood, but, you know, still early days and there's still, you know, not really a proper police force established in the city. But what we do have appearing are the committees of vigilance. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. We have these oh, in no, my indeed. hometown. There's street pastors that go out yes. around the nightclubs and just get shouted at by it's, everyone. I mean, I mean, that's essentially what these were, but they, they were also very violent. I mean, many of them, um, you know, essentially had hired thugs to oh, wow. sort of, you know, maintain the law. And so the first major one um, was formed in 1851. And then we have another one um, being formed in 1856. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, one of their major targets, of course, was the Barbary Coast, though they were also um, very active in Chinatown. Um, and we're going we're gonna to talk about Chinatown a little bit more as well, hopefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, there's so much to discuss. This is the problem with San Francisco. As young as it is, it it's has It's so very, colorful, very, isn't it? The history. Yeah, complex I've got, and rich. <laughs> I've got to ask, what is life like for women in this madness in the 19th century? That is a great question, and I'm so, so glad that you asked that, because this, this has been one of my um, favorite areas to mm. study and research um, within San Francisco. Um, and I think it's going to tie into some of the things that we already discussed about the Ohlone, some of the things that we will discuss about the Chinese and Japanese and the Black mm-hmm. community in San Francisco. Um, and despite this um, reputation that San Francisco has today for being a very progressive city a very revolutionary city it really wasn't (laughs) yeah it really wasn't i mean um i i i think it's safe to say that this was a hub in the 19th century that many many artists and writers flocked to and in that sense it was it, it was a very bohemian city and uh, while it was always um, a, a city for the LGBTQ plus community, there, there was there's always been an active community there. Um, it, you know, it was very much a, a community that was sort of functioning underground, where where you know it, it was acceptable so long as it was done behind closed doors. You didn't talk about it, um, uh, and you know, up, up until 1974, which is shocking. Mm. for many to learn 1974 you could be arrested in san francisco for cross-dressing so really? um yeah good luck oh, yeah. with that yeah um so you know the, uh there was this massive push you know to try to keep all the power keep all the influence within you know the straight white men of san francisco yeah. um we've heard that digress. narrative before yeah. haven't we yes <laughs> I, I digress. We're talking about women. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's forget so, the white men. Let's just uh, yes. concentrate on the uh, others. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, the population of women uh, was relatively small um, in the early days of San Francisco. You know, it was largely men who were flocking to the area for the gold rush. Um, and, you know, the women who were going there were largely sex workers. Um, 
but you know some were uh, working in other areas as well. Um, so you had, there was, a, there was actually a great deal of diversity among the work that women were doing in these early days. Some of them were actually miners as well, or prospectors. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a wonderful account um, of a Mexican woman, actually. So a, um, a, a, Calif a California woman, as, as they were um, termed, um, who had a great deal of wealth and worked as a prospector. Um, you know, she had the money to hire miners and staff and, and own her own mine, um, which Good is really amazing. Her. Yes. <laughs> um, but you had women who were also entrepreneurs who were setting up their own businesses. You had women who were actually working in gambling halls. And, and I don't mean in the sense where they, you know, were working as sex workers in gambling halls. They were manning, you know, the, the, the croupier and, and, the, and the roulette and, and um, very, very successful gamblers in their own right as a result of that. I'm so um, glad to hear that they weren't all just sex workers and women being downtrodden and that there are women that use this sort of wild frontier to go out there and just make themselves. Right. Right. Um, but I don't want to discount the sex workers because mm. there were um, sex workers who made a great deal of money and consequently had a, a great deal of clout because of that. Um, you know, these were these were very, very, very savvy businesswomen at the end of the day. Um, and I mean, you know, probably the most famous, some might say notorious <laughs> Um, sex worker of, of the time, uh, during the gold rush period anyway, was Ah Toy. And Ah Toy was actually a Chinese woman who came over um, very, very early on in the gold rush with her husband. Um, uh, they arrived in 1849, I believed, and her husband suddenly died and she was left on her own. And, you know, she turned to prostitution but again she was extremely extremely savvy um you know and she wasn't necessarily sleeping with men to make money she really played up her beauty she was seen as very attractive she she played up her exoticism which today we frown upon but she worked that yeah and she could charge men just to look at her meaning that she could be you know lounging behind a curtain and, and men would have to pay just to get a glance behind the curtain at her. Mm. And, and that, you know, and that was it. And she eventually did become a madam. Um, and she ran several brothels. One of my favorite things, though, about her is that she challenged the courts, the San Francisco courts and the state courts on several occasions. And this was a time where if you weren't, a white man, you could not go into, you had no rights. You could not appear in court. And she, are we allowed to swear on this? Sorry. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I do all the time. Uh, excellent. Fantastic. <laughs> and she basically said, fuck that. <laughs> Good for her. Um, and, you know, and went, you know, to court several times to assert her rights as a woman and as a business owner. Oh, I love uh, her. Yeah. She was really amazing, and she was, she was definitely somebody who was not to be trifled with. There is this wonderful account of her, um, you know, being out in public, and some man had the nerve to pick a diamond pin off of her. So, again, like a, a, a testament to her wealth, you know, mm. that, that she accrued on her own. And she literally chased the man down the street and grabbed him by the collar um, 
and just swiped the swiped the pin back and started a whole scene and basically you know just um you know, le- left him somewhat the worst for wear, shall we say. This little Tell me she picked him in the bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to have um, been the last move she put on him. <laughs> I mean, I hope it was. I don't know yeah. for sure. The, the account doesn't <laughs> include that, unfortunately. But, <laughs> but you know, like, like she, she was fiercely independent and she wasn't afraid, you know, to assert that independence. And she, I, I, I believe she was very much unafraid to just be herself and, and to be you know, a woman who had financial independence and who had influence because she did have influence. Um, and, you know, kind of come the end of the 1850s, early 1860s, she actually ends up quietly retiring. And, you know, we don't really hear about her too much again um, until her death in, in um, the early 1920s. I can't remember the date exactly, but she mm. was damn old. And, you know, she ma- she was able to live very comfortably for the rest of her life based off you know, a, a good 10 years, shall we say, um, yeah. <laughs> of service. And that, and that was it. And she made a fortune. I love her. Um, you mentioned once already that there has always been a vibrant LBGTQ plus community in San Francisco. What can you tell mm-hmm. us about that? Um, so again, it, it was kind of something that, that operated quietly, uh, within San Francisco and also the um, the mining towns um, outside of the city, um, but you know that it, this wasn't a group that really had any rights, but it was something that people knew about, and you know was generally just kind of accepted. Like, like I said, so long as it was done behind closed doors, mm. um, you know. But it wasn't just straight white men who were coming over. There were obviously gay men who were coming over as well. And again, the population of women is very small. <laughs> it was very small. It's like needs must, isn't it? Yes. I, 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 you know, I think it's safe to say that, yes. Um, Not to stereotype if you, if you, men if you and say they're itch. led by it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had an itch that, and you needed a scratch. Well, then that, that was something that, that honestly was, was seen as perfectly fine in the early days of San Francisco. Um, and I don't think it's really until, you know, we start to see these, um, you know, commit, um, uh, committees of vigilance emerging in, in the 1850s, um, where that's something that kind of starts to come more to the forefront and be frowned upon. But again, you know, the, the, it's still a community that was living here and active here, uh, including the trans community. But, um, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that was a community that um, was especially vulnerable, vulnerable in trans women in particular, because they were, you know, dressing in women's clothes I mean, they were dressing in men's clothes, but you know, those who were um, who, but trans women who were, um, you know, dressing in women's clothes were the ones who stood out especially mm. and, you know, could experience violence, um, you know, could definitely be arrested and fined uh, with money that they didn't necessarily have yeah. <laughs> to pay for the release. Um, so, you know, again, I, I, I kind of want to challenge this assumption that people have of San Francisco always being this very open, very progressive space, uh, because the, the, the truth is that it has earned that reputation through the literal blood, sweat and tears of these communities who have fought yeah. to give it that reputation. And the trans community has been one of those communities. Um, I, I mean, again, literally going back to sort of, you know, the founding of, of the city proper during the gold rush. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's amazing. Um, we have to talk about immigrants. And in, you can't talk about San Francisco, even I know this, without talking about the influx <laughs> of Chinese people into San Francisco in particular. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so the, the Chinese population was massive, um, massive, massive, massive. And at one point, I think account in those early days um, of the gold rush accounted for about 10% of the population in, in, the, in the whole of California, which is amazing. And to this day, it still accounts for one fifth of the population in San Francisco. So uh, it was vibrant from the get-go, um, you know, but as I mentioned earlier, there, there was always kind of this sort of quiet presence, um, informal community that existed here going back, you know, to roughly the 1750s um, for trade purposes. And, you know, with the boom of the gold rush, that's when we really see the establishment of Chinatown. Um, and, you know, Chinatown um, was and still is a very, very vibrant district, a very, very vibrant neighborhood and community. Um, and, you know, from the get-go, really operated off a very, very, very diverse economy, um, which is one of the reasons why it was so vibrant. Um, so, you know, you had various shops and markets. Uh, Chinatown had their own gambling halls and their own theaters, their own cafes and restaurants and bars. Um, and it, it was a, you know, um, very, very organized, you know, network and, and, and community of activity. Mm. It's just, oh, I just love this. It's brilliant. So we've got to 1906, which is something I have heard of because it's a devastating <laughs> earthquake. It is an actual real disaster, not a Hollywood disaster that hits San Francisco, um, and is followed by more disasters like fires and things that it causes. So can you tell us what happened? Yes, um, absolutely. So I, I think you kind of summed up the event itself quite nicely. You know, yeah. that there, we basically do have this massive earthquake. Uh, and much of the city survived the earthquake. It wasn't the earthquake that did the most damage. It was the fire. Um, so that, you know, by the time um, the, the flames had been extinguished, 80% of the city had been destroyed. Oh, 80%. Wow. So it, it had very nearly been wiped off the map entirely. Um, and, you know, the demarcator, um, you know, of what survived was very much like the haves and the have-nots. So, you know, kind of like, like the Knob Hill, Russian Hill area, which, um, you know, was very, was a very affluent area is what survived. And, you know, uh, Knob today, Hill is Mrs. Doubtfire, right? Yes. Okay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and, and, and today it's quite nice because you can go to those areas and there are, you know, beautiful, beautiful buildings and homes that are pre-1906 um, because they survived the earthquake and fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of nice to have those still and to kind of get, um, a, you know, a vision of the city prior to that destruction. Um, but what, uh, what you have happening as a consequence of that, it becomes a, a very, very tumultuous period in the city's history uh, and another um, era of rapid, rapid growth and development. So rebuilding began almost immediately hmm. after the fire. Um, I mean, you know, like, like immediately after debris was being cleared away and within a couple of days, re- rebuilding was restarting at some degree. Um, but you had a huge, huge housing problem. You know, so many people were homeless as a result of this. You had, um, you know, several refugee camps throughout the city that were set up in Portsmouth Square, um, which is kind of the origin of the Barbary Coast. Uh, in Golden Gate Park, you had dozens because Golden Gate Park is just massive. Um, and you have this, this pressure to not only find housing, but there's additional pressure on, on the city, on the, on the civic leaders, because San Francisco has been gifted the 1915 Panama exhibition. So this is like the World's Fair. And even before the earthquake, they were already planning for this and organizing. They had already started construction on some things. This was a massive event. And so there was this additional pressure to show the world. I mean, the entire world, because the entire world was going to flock here in 1915, that San Francisco was a survivor. San Francisco was a resilient city and, you know, could be reborn out of the ashes and rubble of the earthquake. Um, And, you know, so you have these massive building efforts that are including these grand, grand avenues that were modeled after Paris. Um, You have the new city hall that's being built, again, very, very much also modeled after architecture in Paris. Uh, and you have large commercial buildings that are starting to be built as well, right next to, you know, to dive bars and like, like yeah. little dance halls. And um, so, it, so it, it, was, it was really incredible. Um, but you also have heightened racial tensions coming out of this. The period following the 1906 earthquake and fire is not the first time that white San Franciscans are trying to force out the Chinese and now the Japanese. There were several efforts um, pretty much from the get-go mm. <laughs> of the gold rush um, of, you know, white San Franciscans and, and white civic leaders in particular trying to force out the Chinese. Um, and you have several, several laws that are emerging in San Francisco and eventually becoming federal law. So, you know, at a national level, um, you know, barring Chinese immigration, um, you know, barring Chinese civil rights and later Japanese civil rights and Japanese immigration. And, you know, with the destruction of the 1906 earthquake and fire and, you know, consequently Chinatown and, and Japantown, like both were just completely wiped out and both existed next to each other um, initially. So they were right on each other's borders. This was used as an excuse again, yet again, to force them out of the city. Mm. Um, And you see white San Franciscans, you know, pitting various minority groups against each other. So you're pitting the Chinese against the black community and vice versa and the Japanese community. Um, You know, basically any, anybody who, who was brown or, (laughs) or black, which was terrible. 
Um, and even, you know, those white ethnicities that, um, you know, elsewhere within the country, like New York, for instance, who had typically, you know, also experienced uh, racism and prejudice. So in the Irish and Italians in particular, the two groups I'm thinking of in broad America and then in San Francisco specifically, who use, you know, this as an excuse as well to, you know, try to, um, you know, gain more social footing for themselves um, and basically demonizing these, you know, these other communities who were people of color. Um, and what ends up saving the Chinese community um, following the earthquake and fire is firstly the Chinese government. Chinese government stepped in because uh, the United States had a trade agreement with China, has had a trade agreement with China since the 1780s, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, and basically, you know, in a nutshell, kind of threatened that agreement. <laughs> <Wow. You> know? <laughs> um, you know, because d despite um, the terrible, terrible way that San Franciscans viewed um, the Chinese in China, there were a lot of fantastic goods that were coming out of the country and into America as a result of that agreement. And the port of entry for them was San Francisco. Um, and in hand with that, you also had very, very wealthy, successful second and third generation Chinese American businessmen who stepped up and said, we will fund the rebuilding of Chinatown oh. right where it is. And we will rebuild it in this way, um, which, you know, to a modern audience is very, very kitsch. If you have been to San Francisco's Chinatown, you know, you will see that it has, you know, Chinese lanterns and, and pagoda-like buildings everywhere. And this was intentional. This was, you know, the very, very smart and savvy strategy of these second and third generation Chinese American businessmen to reconstruct it in this way to draw in tourism. And they said, we are going to do this. We're going to bring in tourists. And those tourists are going to bring money into the city. And that's your money. That's the city's money. Yeah. And, and the city and the city okayed it. Um, but what happened consequently, you know, so a moment ago, you know, I just mentioned how white San Franciscans were kind of pitting various groups against each other. And the black community is one of the groups that was um, very eager to see the Chinese go because they knew that if the Chinese didn't go, they would be the ones to go. And that is sadly what happened. They were pushed out to Hunter's Point, which today is now part of the city, but at that time really wasn't. It was kind of like, like you know, on the fringes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the black community consequently um, suffered for decades because of that. And, and uh, you know, thankfully um, saw a resurgence in the 1970s and 1980s, where it, it eventually accounted for roughly 14% of the city. Uh, but sadly has now declined um, to about 5% of, of, of the population makeup of the city due to, you know. You have a massive <laughs> cost of living, yes. don't you? Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, it's, it's largely communities of color and also the LGBTQ plus community that has suffered as a result of this and been forced out. But, um, but yes, I want to talk about women again as well and kind of the social yeah, impact for women as a result of this earthquake. Um, so I got to backtrack a little bit to the 19th century um, for yet another shocking fact, I'm sure, for those who kind of had this image of San Francisco as, you know, the progressive beacon of the United yeah. States. Um, so in 1896, you have the proposition for women's suffrage going on the California state ballot. And it fails. It only gets 44% of the vote. And a big reason why 
it lost was because San Francisco voted against it. And you have to bear in mind that for roughly a 30 year period in the 19th century, um, like roughly, um, you know, up, up through the early 1890s, San Francisco accounted for 25% of the state's population. One quarter of the state resided in San Francisco. Wow. So they were holding, you know, that result in their hand. And I mean, it was, it was a landslide against suffrage. I, I, I mean, 74, 75% of the city voted against suffrage, which is just insane. Man. But <laughs> fast forward <laughs> to 1906. Uh, we have a lot of homeless people. We have a lot of people out of work. Mm. When I say people, I mean men, um, because businesses have been destroyed. So enter women. Women are entering the workforce for the first time on mass, the workforce proper, shall we say. Um, and so much so, you know, that they are, you know, they're kind of realizing that, hey, this is kind of cool making money. This is kind of cool having some financial independence. Yeah, it's like um, the World War One impact as well. I don't want to go back in my box when this is over. Yeah. <laughs> and I will talk about that too when we, when we get yeah. to that. Um, but the point being, you, um, you come to basically a year after the earthquake and fire, April, May, 1907, and you start having massive worker strikes. And many, many women are leading these strikes uh, because they have entered the workforce and they're demanding things that are unfortunately still being demanded today. You know, they're, being, they're, they're demanding better working conditions. They're demanding equal pay for equal work. Um, and like one of the biggest ones happening in May of 1907 is uh, the telephone operator strike, you know? So this is a group of 500 women who, you know, went on strike against the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company. Um, and it was bloody amazing. Uh, yeah. And you have other, um, you know, worker strikes that are being organized during this time too. Um, but this is really where we start to see women kind of coming to the forefront of massive social movements in the city. Um, and it's really, really lovely to see. And, you know, kind of puts the city on this path, you know, toward uh, women's suffrage so that in 1911 when suffrage actually does pass on the California ballot um, you know more San Franciscans at least more than in 1896 are, vo are voting for women to have the right to vote because women are, are suddenly becoming more active within the city and within the, the city's economy in particular. Um, Good. <laughs> Still, still wasn't, you still didn't have the largest majority vote in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, Berkeley actually had the largest majority vote in, in the Bay Area for women's suffrage in 1911. So maybe a testament to the reputation that Berkeley also has as a progressive beacon. But um, yeah, uh, what also happens though, during this time, um, you know, despite what can be seen as progress is you have a huge movement to shut down the areas of ice, including the Barbary Coast. Mm. Um, and the Barbary Coast is still a massive center for employment for women. Um, and so it's kind of, it's like, it's this massive contradiction, really, which honestly is San Francisco in a nutshell. <laughs> um, 
so the Barbary Coast, um, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, was actually one of the first areas to be rebuilt after the 1906 earthquake and fire. But, you know, it's kind of a cleaned up version. So, you know, you don't have as many brothels as you do, um, you know, theaters and jazz clubs and dance halls, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing that are now being, um, you know, uh, uh, constructed in this rebirth of the area. Uh, you do still have brothels all over the city though. And again, many women run. Um, and I'm going to touch upon that a little bit more in just a moment here as well. Um, but this kind of uh, sadly becomes the end of the Barbary Coast, at least as we know it. And, you know, there is this extreme shift in political policy in 1911. So again, the same year that women's suffrage is granted. Um, you know, to just kind of, to, to shut down the district entirely. Um, I mean, this, like shutting down this, this process included, um, you know, basically excluding women, you know, so women, whether they're employees or, or patrons can no longer, you know, go to any establishment within the Barbary Coast that's going to be serving alcohol. Um, this meant, you know, many bars and, you know, restaurants and dance halls in the area of actually firing their female employees. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which was terrible. Um, and, you know, the district effectively shuts down in 1914. And then a few years later, you know, uh, the broader um, network of brothels also starts to be attacked. Um, and in 1917 is when really the brothels are shut down, sadly, but you have this incredible, incredible moment in San Francisco history of sex workers organizing a massive protest. This is actually the very, very, very first sex workers protest in American history, and nobody ever talks about it. No or way. Knows about it. It's happening here in San Francisco in 1917. You have hundreds of women, hundreds of sex workers appearing on the streets in the Tenderloin, which is the neighborhood that I live in, mm-hmm. um, and the best neighborhood, as far as I'm concerned. Of course. <laughs> um, and has always been a massive center for social reform, actually, within the city. Um, you know, taking to the streets of the Tenderloin and marching, you know, to a church. And this was led and organized by two madams, Reggie Gamble and Maud Spencer. And Reggie Gamble gave one hell of a bloody speech on that church pulpit. Mm. I mean, absolutely like chilling. Um, and I'm happy to try to find that and send it to you if you like, because I'm, I'm oh. not going to try to quote yeah. anything from it. But it no, was, do it, was, it. We'll put it out on the Twitter feed when we air this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was absolutely spectacular. And, you know, but it really was just about like, wh- what are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to go? This is how we make our living. Um, you know, you have not thought about how we're supposed to make a living. Once you do shut down the brothels, you have not thought about labor reform or where we're supposed to, you know, find work where we're supposed to live because many of the women who were working in these, in these brothels were also living in them. Mm-hmm. And many of them also had children. You haven't thought about the children. Like, like how are we supposed to feed them? Um, how, how are they supposed to be schooled, etc.? Um, so problems, honestly, that, that continue to the state that people don't think about when they talk about, you know, some of these. <laughs> when they go, let's shut the brothels down and all the yeah, or, crusaders well, go, yeah. You know, or, or even, um, you know, uh, conversations around abortion that are still happening today. Like there are similar mm. things that aren't talked about, you know, like, like well, 
yeah, you want you want to save the child, but what what about after the child's born? What then? Yeah, who's going to provide for the child? (laughs) Yeah, it's not so. We just we just don't have that kind of crazy dialogue over here. I just it anyway. Curdles your stomach. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. Um, What happens in San Francisco during the Second World War? Oh, yes. So this is actually um, a very exciting time in the, San Fr- in the city's history. And again, another period that not a lot of people know about or talk about. This, um, this is actually an era that's deemed the second gold rush <laughs> Okay, for San Francisco. Uh, I mean, th- this was the center of the American arsenal, basically. Uh, I mean, it was actually called the arsenal of democracy <laughs> and, you know, caused so many dramatic changes in the Bay Area. Um, you know, like this, this was... Um, you know, the, the, the center of the Arsenal shipyard. This was like the coastal fortress against, you know, the, the, the Pacific and in the, in the front of the Pacific. It was the pipeline to the Pacific, you know, to Japan and everything that was happening out there. Um, and, you know, you had people flocking to this area again, you know, military and non-military alike. Um, and, and it, you know, it consequently led to this massive, massive boom in the city's population, a massive, massive boom in the workforce within the city. Um, you know, so during the war, you had men and women, emphasis again, that women mm. were also a big part of this, who were working in, you know, San Francisco shipyards. And over the course of the war, they built 1,400 vessels. And that basically averaged a ship a day, if you can believe that, which is That's crazy. insane. <laughs> It is insane. It's absolutely nuts. Um, and I mean, you had literally tens of thousands, tens of thousands of Bay Area women moving into the workforce um, during this time. So just absolutely unprecedented. And, you know, starting to challenge those common perceptions about their capabilities and what they could do. Um, but it was also um, one of the first times where they were really faced with you know, the problem of being working parents, you know, many of them, you know, were single parents at this time, you know, their spouses were overseas. And so entering the workforce and having, um, you know, to worry about how they were going to manage daycare, like childcare, how they were going to pay for their housing, etc. Um, were um, realities in, in, that, you know, um, became massive, massive concerns during this time for women. Mm. That's just crazy. Um, <laughs> you mentioned right at the beginning, the summer of love. Tell us about San Francisco. Yes. <laughs> um, so in order to get to the summer of love, I want to backtrack just a little bit to the end mm-hmm. of World War II. Yeah. Um, and uh, also what, just quickly want to mention Japanese internment because I, I, I know a lot of people uh, know about that, but I think we should mention it um, regardless. Um, we've covered so, it for Vancouver on here as well. It just beggars yeah. belief. Were there concentration camps inland as well, like in Canada? Um, I mean, in California, yes, not in San Francisco. Um, yeah. But what happened is, so San Francisco prior to internment had a huge and vibrant Japanese community, huge mm-hmm. and vibrant. And the entire community was forced out. And, you know, people ask me regularly, like, well, why is, why is the Chinese community like, like so vibrant today? Yet the Japanese community is so small and internment, yeah. internment, that's it. And after the war, many didn't return to the city, unfortunately. You know, they went elsewhere. They went down to L.A. They went to Sacramento um, or, or what have you. Um, you know, but yes, the war, the war ends. And what happens in San Francisco is similar to what happens all across America during this time. Uh, you see this massive, massive push in the city toward conservatism. 
massive, massive push toward traditional values and the nuclear family and that whole 1950s, you know, homemaker kind of bullshit. Mm. Um, and, um, but what you also see happening in the 1950s in San Francisco is the beatnik era. <laughs> Um, and this is probably the start of what would eventually evolve into the summer of love yeah. and, and, and then eventually into the rebirth of San Francisco entirely within the 1970s. And like the 1970s for me in particular is this period where San Francisco firmly establishes the reputation that it has today. And, you know, that is the era where we see massive, massive social revolution happening in the city. Um, but, you know, the beatnik um, uh, communities is the community that I think is really kind of kickstarting that, you know, so that is this community of writers and artists who are still coming into the city and kind of starting to challenge this social norm of conservatism that's followed the Second World War. Um, and then, you know, moving into the 1960s, we have the Summer of Love, where San Francisco kind of becomes this epicenter of the hippie movement. And, you know, also very, very important movement um, that I feel is largely responsible for kind of kickstarting a lot of the social reform that we would see in the 1960s and 70s mm. um, is the Compton's Cafeteria riot. And again, this is an event that I feel few people know about or talk about if certainly if you are from the lgbtq plus community you you know about it or at least you probably do i have never uh, heard of it yeah exactly uh but you have heard of stonewall right yes yeah um so compton's this is jean compton's um cafeteria and then this was actually a local chain so that you know they had uh, places all over the city um, from roughly the 1940s to the 1970s, but the Tenderloin location specifically um, on Taylor Street uh, was one of the few places in the city where transgender people and drag queens, um, but, you know, trans women especially could actually go and congregate publicly um, because they were unwelcome elsewhere, including gay bars, within gay bars, within the gay community. There was a lot of transphobia, still is to this day. And, um, you know, that being said, though, doesn't mean that the Compton's management and staff wouldn't necessarily call the police, and the police would often use this as, as an excuse, you know, to raid or close an establishment. Um, but, you know, the, there is this one night police were called and you know the community that had sort of you know communed there for the evening said enough is enough um we're not going to take it anymore and they started a riot in the bloody cafeteria oh and, my god yeah really kick-started the lgbtq plus movement um mm. in the u.s and, and certainly in san francisco um and so, you know, we fast forward to the 1970s a bit, and that's where a lot of the, um, this movement is really starting to take off and, you know, sort of bring in other groups as well. So not just LGBTQ+, but the Indigenous Ohlone um, start a massive social movement in uh, 1969 that goes through the 70s that really centers ar around their rights, um, you know, and, and also around uh, the revitalization of their culture and their heritage. Uh, the Black community is, is also... Um, uh, heavily amplified during the 1970s as well. And this is the era of Harvey Milk, 
um, whom you may have heard of or you may have seen the movie <laughs> with mm. Sean Penn. Yes. Um, and it's just, it, it's absolutely incredible. Um, and this is, uh, you know, like I said, when San Francisco really becomes known as a revolutionary city and thankfully has maintained that reputation that we still have a lot of work to do. I'm not going to lie. Um, but, you know, becomes this sort of epicenter for progressivism and social change, not only um, in its, within its borders, but within broader California and honestly within the nation. You know, there are a lot of um, federal laws that exist now or that were established, you know, earlier in the 20th century, um, you know, that were protecting the rights of the marginalized that started here in San Francisco and were started by those groups. And, you know, it's then that we really have to thank for that. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on to share your city with us. Uh, this has taken a few historical references that I kind of knew in the back of my head and just brought them to life. It's brilliant. <laughs> Tell people so, what they can see of this history still today in San Francisco when we can finally get out of the house again. Yes, yes. Um, well, and hopefully if you're in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, you can still explore safely. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, th there's quite a lot, actually, which is fantastic. Um, and I think a big part of that is because so much of the city was destroyed in the 06 earthquake and fire. And there's you know kind of been this effort to preserve what did survive that and what was built immediately after that. So going back to the Tenderloin, the Tenderloin alone has, uh, I think roughly 462 listed buildings in it. Wow. Um, you know, buildings that are, you know, uh, legislated and protected you know, um, for historic preservation. And that's just the Tenderloin. Chinatown is essentially preserved, is more or less preserved as it was um, following the 1906 earthquake um, and fire when it was rebuilt. So that is also just an absolute historic trip if you're walking through there. Um, we have a lot of stuff from World War II. I know that's one of your fortes and one of your <laughs> passions. So if you, if you can make it out here, you will have a field day. Do you know um, what's shocking? My <laughs> aunt lives in the Bay Area. <laughs> never oh, been. really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She no lives about an hour no outside excuse, of Alex. the city. I know. I'm shameful. <laughs> we haven't even but, mentioned Alcatraz either. Yeah, we didn't mention Alcatraz. Um, I, and Alcatraz has its own um, weird and fascinating history. Yeah, I know. <laughs> obviously, obviously, you can go visit Alcatraz. That is still there. That was actually um, a big part of the um, Ohlone civil rights movement that I mentioned that kind of kicked mm. off in the late uh, 60s and into the 70s. Um, a lot of their um, um, uh, events were taking place on Alcatraz. And, you know, they occupied the island for literally years mm. um, as they were pushing, you know, for their rights, uh, which is just amazing. Um, but, um, but yes, their uh, Alcatraz prior to bringing a prison, of course, was a military <laughs> base. It was a fort. Um, and there are parts of it, parts of that that are still surviving that you can explore when you go visit the island. There are military bases all over from World War II, um, coastal defense fortifications and forts, shipyards, workers housing, uh, worker housing and other buildings from World War II that you will just have a ball with. And the Golden Gate Recreation Area in, in particular has probably the largest concentration of World War II monuments um, for those who, who love who love that era as much as Alex does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's been brilliant. I just, I'm so excited now to get 
to San Francisco at some point and see it. You really have brought it to life for us. And this is great because we're having something soon on London as well, but we definitely don't just want to tout British history on here. And you've been amazing. You gave us, you spoiled us with a list of topics. So we can definitely get you back to talk about something else soon. Oh, that, yeah, that would be fabulous. I, I, yes, I gave you quite an extensive list, I think, of things that I could wax poetic about. But <laughs> and diverse <laughs> as well. Yeah, Much more diverse than I could do. <laughs> I would love to come back. This has been great, Alex. Thank you so much for having me on. Join us on Monday when we will be talking to Jonathan Waterlow all about humour under Stalin. You think it wouldn't be allowed? You're kind of right, but you can find out how Russians got around it and the kind of black humour that developed in the period. It's really interesting. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.